Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Basketball Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? Coomer, it's a weird time to be alive, but it's still a great day to be a Cincinnati sports fan. Indeed, it is. Hummer, I'm going to lead with this. As it stands, Marge Schott's name is still on the baseball stadium. No updates. No sports updates. Not sure what you're doing, John. <laughs> Ball's in your court. <laughs> uh, the, I know that the trustees are meeting on the 23rd. I hope it's a quick meeting. I hope it's a quick decision. We'll see what happens. Uh, but that's our update on the Marge shot situation. The layup that is the decision to remove her name from the stadium uh, is not such a layup for UC in terms of how quickly they're able to make this type of decision. However, Hummer, let's actually let's 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 Wait, not. So I, know, I know we said we were going to be quick, but another thought just popped in my head about the baseball stadium, <laughs> and it actually has nothing to do with Marge shot. But has anybody thrown out what name should be on the stadium? There have if, been there have been some Kevin, ideas. If it's not Kevin Euclid Field, like what is it? Yeah, and I, I'll go ahead and give credit to my the favorite name I've heard. The, the best name or best suggestion I've heard was uh, Chad Brendel did have the idea of, of naming it the Uke, which just Ooh. sounds like an awesome, awesome <laughs> name for a stadium. So I'll co-sign on that one. I love that idea. Haven't really thought about it too much else for myself. Uh, because that's obvious. I think it's a no-brainer. Put Kevin Euclid's name on that stadium. Dude, that's that's the the Uke. Yeah. <laughs> it makes I sense. just I can just picture it now. You're you know, batters the, the uh, opposing batters up, he's in the box, it's full count. He gets caught looking on a curveball right off the corner of the plate, and you just hear the stadium go, You got uked. <laughs> <laughs> Just, there's so much potential and so many options with a name like that. Uh, oh. So it'll be good. It'll be it'll be really good once his name is uh, is on that stadium, and I think we'll we'll all be better off for it. But Hummer, let's get into some fun hypothetical talk about sports because, as we know, there are no real sports happening right now. Well, there's some there's some European soccer, and uh, I'll go ahead and put some pressure on myself. We did record a podcast a couple of weeks ago with our good friend Kevin Wallace. He runs the Post Cincinnati, uh, diehard FC Cincinnati fan. We had him on when there was nothing happening at all, just spitball on college athletics, uh, turning it professional. I mean, the conversation went everywhere. I've dragged my feet on, on editing it and putting it together. And also, there's just been a lot of weird, weird life stuff that's happened since that date. So this week, midweek, will be a two-episode week. We've got a long podcast conversation with Kevin Wallace. Looking forward to posting that. Um, and I, I got sidetracked here, but uh, my point is, let's talk about some of the real or hypothetical things we can get into with respect to UC sports. And we'll get into the football team a little bit uh, with respect to some, uh, we'll kind of preview, start previewing the season and start previewing the opponents. And then later in the episode, we'll get into our basketball roster, the depth chart, how excited you are or are not for the coming season. Uh, but first, let's start with the football team, Hummer. Um, we need to just start going through the schedule team by team, week by week. And I thought a good way of doing that would be to start discussing it uh, in a way where we would just call it why we won't lose to. Why we won't lose to. This week, we'll start with week one. On September 3rd, we are scheduled to play Austin P. University. Let's talk, Hummer, about why we won't lose to Austin P. University. You mean the governors? <laughs> governors? Uh, well, the first reason we won't lose to Austin P is their Wikipedia page fits into one computer screen, uh, essentially alluding to the fact that they have no history uh, being a, college, a major college football program. Uh, if I'm mis not mistaken, they're they're also in the, the the FCS 
So they're not even in the, the football bowl subdivision. Yep. They're in the uh, Ohio Valley conference. Good old Ohio Valley FCS team. They made their first playoff last season. They got a couple of playoff wins uh, before their season was ultimately ended by Montana state uh, in, a, in a decently close matchup there at the end of the season. Yeah, it, it is important to note we've played Austin P twice. Uh, and it was funny. I mean, I remember knowing that off the top of my head that we played him in the past because uh, I was at that game with my dad and it was one of those games where he just did not want to go uh, because as we've gotten into this conversation already in past podcasts, you know, when the University of Cincinnati isn't playing top-tier competition, it's not a whole – a lot of people don't want to go to the games, and then we hear people complaining about there are a lack of fans in the stands. Uh, but we went to Austin P in uh, 2011 where we put the smack down. Uh, we took the chair over their head. We threw them off the ring, broke the table. Uh, you, you know, they, they didn't get back up after that. The score was 72-10. to 10. Um, but the last time they came to Cincinnati, we were still in a rebuild mode. Uh, it, it, per se, it was 2017. And we, I would say we squeaked away the win at home, a 26 to 14, um, victory. I don't think it's going to be that close this time around, even though they've had success last year. I just, you know, when you're talking to these types of teams, you know, us a loss in this game would be worse than when Ohio state lost to Appalachian state. Oh, absolutely. But that 26, 14 victory that from 2017, that was actually Luke fickle's first year with the Bearcats. And if you remember, that was a, that was a, a, a season that we finished four and eight, not a great start to the Luke fickle era, but obviously he was taking over for a bum ass coach in Tommy Tuberville and the cupboard was bare. So you couldn't really hold it against him. The next season is next season is where we really started seeing things turn around. Obviously, Austin P is running into quite a different version of the Cincinnati Bearcats in the year 2020. Um, so, look, usually this segment is going to feature lots of talk about how rosters are constructed, what their strengths are, breaking down their how they play, what style of football. Look, it's Austin P. I don't think we have to actually go into all that. Uh, this team is not in our league from a talent standpoint. Luke Fickle has found his footing from a coaching standpoint with the Bearcats. Our defense is likely going to absolutely demolish a team like Austin P. They're not used to the type of competition we're playing. This is very much going to be uh, a warm-up, uh, a wetting of the palate for the Bearcats as they, uh, as they start increasing the level of competition as the season goes on those first three weeks of the season. Yeah. Which is, which is okay. I mean, they do this almost every year. I feel like we, we play these types of teams at the beginning of the year just to kind of get it off, except for last year or was that last year, last year, did we play Ohio state first game? No, it wasn't the first game. It was, I think week two. Was it week two? Um, or I'm getting basketball confused. Because um, we did. Yes, we we've did kicked not. off the last two seasons in basketball <laughs> against Ohio State. Um, but, yeah, you're playing these types of teams. We know we shouldn't lose. But, honestly, you know, getting into the schedule conversation, our schedule isn't one that just leaves me feeling very warm and fuzzy inside. Not from a not from a standpoint of, like, there's teams under that I'm just afraid to play that, you know, oh my God, this could be such a tough game. We're going to, I would like to see a lot more of those types of games uh, because right now there is, I think a reasonable expectation that we could run the table there. You could be looking at an undefeated Cincinnati football squad this year. And if that were to happen, I don't think we're necessarily talking shoe in or maybe even a close conversation for the playoffs based off the schedule that I see. Yeah, I, I mean, look, it's going to depend on how, what the competition really turns into. Right now, it's all based on paper. Um, if Nebraska is better than they've been the last several several years, you know, maybe that's a, a better win than it would be in years past. Um, it certainly depends on how good UCF ends up being. Uh, is Houston salvageable uh, down there? And and a lot of it depends on the variables of, you know, does Clemson still have a football team? Uh, later in the season as they're as they run up the COVID numbers so lots to be decided I agree with you though you look at the you look at the schedule 
and I can't help but think, shit, we're going, we're going undefeated this season. I mean, it's, it's not, I don't think it's out of the realm. I, you look at games like Miami, Ohio, like uh, when's the last time we've lost to Miami? I, I honestly don't know. It's been so long. Uh, <laughs> I've, I don't think I personally have witnessed a loss to Miami, Ohio. Uh, it's well, I think just, the last time that actually happened, uh, Ben Roethlisberger was on campus and, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, that did, was concerning call, to that university. Did they call the cops on that, that one? They might have. I don't know. Moving on. Um, Look, this segment, to get to refocus here, this segment is, is supposed to be a preview of the Austin P game. I think the, the most interesting part of this um, in terms of playing down to, you know, an FCS team, not as much talent, not a lot of concern in terms of what you're actually going up against. There are interesting variables at play right now in terms of teams being able to practice, teams being able to get in weight rooms, teams actually being able to get the cohesiveness they're accustomed to for football uh, and having a proper training camp, given what we're seeing with COVID-19. The season is rapidly approaching, and UC seems to be smart in terms of how they're rolling this out. They're bringing players on campus in waves. They're doing so regionally, trying to keep it local at first and then expanding the bubble as they go along, making sure they have proper testing procedures in place. But at the end of the day, there's not much they can actually do to prevent that. You can't be 100% certain you're stopping COVID from affecting your team. And we're seeing it across the country with lots of different programs at this point. We don't know what the Bearcats are going to get in terms of a training camp, in terms of uh, cohesiveness. So I think that is maybe the most interesting part of Austin P is we didn't get a spring game. We haven't gotten a lot of chances to see this team play, the new version of this team. And uh, this will be our first taste of, of what 2020 has to bring uh, from a Cincinnati Bearcats football standpoint. Yeah, and I think it's safe to say when you're talking about bringing, you know, the kids back on campus and, and you know, not to interrupt my thought too much for you, I really do want to get into this. You know, when I'm looking at the football schedule, I do see some games I'm getting excited about that we can talk about, especially the games against Memphis. Would love to see some vengeance taken out there games against Central Florida. I'm really excited. But yeah, when it comes to COVID, more specifically when it comes to COVID in the University of Cincinnati, when they put out their plan for reopening campus and welcoming students back in the fall, they made a comment that basically right off the bat of their, of their press release says, we believe in the science. So that, that's their stance is we believe in the science. So they're going about this in a very thoughtful way that takes science into account and how to do this safely. So that being said, like you mentioned, they're bringing players out in waves for voluntary workouts. Um, they started that June 8th with the NCAA, uh, with our start of our schedule, we're allowed to start our, our preseason on July 11th. The worry is though, and you brought this up, Clemson recently had somewhere between 21 and 23, uh, players confirmed for COVID-19, uh, depending on which source you're looking at, um, ESPN reports 21, SI reports uh, 23. Uh, it, it is concerning of how that's going to affect the plans because as of right now, it's all systems go. Everybody's going to be, you know, rocking and rolling. But when you're taking a look at what's happening in states like Florida, states like Arizona, and states like Texas, those three states all basically have an impact almost of some sort in in all of the major conferences. You know, Texas and Florida both obviously impact us in both big ways because. You know, over a quarter of our teams are located in those two states. Uh, so what happens if Florida, if a state like Florida does have to shut down because of exponential COVID-19 growth? Is that going to affect us? Is because we're not playing SF or USF. We're not playing UCF. So it is still concerning. Uh, the only way we're not coming out with a W against Austin P is, frankly, the football isn't played. <laughs> uh, that's great analysis. Spot on. Um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting, Hummer. I, I was someone who was cautiously optimistic that the summer would bring a respite from the COVID-19 virus. Uh, look, it was clearly a naive thought because it's it's unrelenting and it and it, uh, there's no hiding from it at this point. So I think it's it's a matter of these states getting it under control on a case-by-case basis. Football programs and college programs across the country developing procedures that that keep their student athletes as insulated as possible within reason, you know, at all, I mean, at the end of the day, they're also still conducting college courses. 
I mean, this is going to be incredibly disruptive to how you conduct, uh, you know, business as usual at a university of, of across the country. I mean, University of Cincinnati has thousands and thousands of students and the same can be said for Ohio State, Alabama, all of these universities have an incredibly high concentration of people all on one spot. Uh, lots of spit being swapped. This is, uh, it's hard to see how they rein it in. I'm definitely nervous, but I'm still keeping hope that there's going to be a football season. And when there is, come September 3rd, there's no doubt in my mind, uh, Austin P. unfortunately for them, just doesn't stand much of a chance. We're not, I'm sorry, Austin P. I just, I didn't even give you the time of day in terms of learning, learning much about your team, because if we don't smack you around like we did back in 2011, 72 to 10, I think our fan base is going to be disappointed. Yeah. And you know, with the foot in respect to the, to the football season happening, I do honestly think it's going to happen. Uh, you know, more importantly, not because of safety being taken into account. I think it's more of how this is being played out, not just in the media, but with amongst our politicians, the, the us versus them mentality. So depending on, you know, states like Florida with Governor Rick DeSantis probably isn't going to be inclined to shut things down because he's part of whichever side of the us versus them he happens to be on. You know, that's where you're kind of seeing right now, I feel like Florida is putting their head in the sand in, in regards to what's going on, you know, and it's a culture difference. You know, if I'm, if I'm talking about just even the difference from being here in Philadelphia, you know, when I go to the grocery store, everybody is wearing a mask, right? When we go out to eat, People are wearing their masks. Like, don't, and the only thing we have to do for a mask is once you get into the restaurant, once you get to your table, you can take the mask off. And then all the tables are, you know, far enough away from you. Their servers are wearing, you know, masks and everything. But it's a culture difference. I go to Ohio, who has indoor dining, and not one person brought a mask with them. You know, the, the serving staff was wearing them half off their face. You know, it's just a difference in culture. Not saying that Ohio is obviously they're not experiencing it the way, say, Florida is, but I feel like Florida is also one of those places that had just a different mentality about COVID since the very beginning. How many restaurants um, did you visit in 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 Ohio? Uh, two. Okay, nice sample size there, buddy. Taking hey, shots at good old Ohio here. I a am sample size of two. I haven't personally been into a restaurant. We haven't. But I've been to taken that step yet. But I have. Look, I've been in grocery stores. There are. High, high portions of the population still in Ohio that are wearing a mask. High enough? Probably not. Uh, but come on, take it easy. Take it easy on Ohio. We went to the grocery store yesterday uh, and not one person was without a mask. I Trader like with I a like line, With a line standing, even when they were standing outside the grocery store waiting to get in the Trader Joe's, there was you know, a line of probably 50 or some odd people waiting to get in. Every single person wore their mask while they were standing outside in the sun. It's just a mentality difference. Bunch and of snowflakes. It's a bunch of snowflakes, a bunch of libtards out here. Um, uh, it's, it's just it's super simple. If we want to have a football season, or better yet, better yet in my eyes, a basketball season, let's just do the simple things. We're not, you know, it's not tyranny. It's not hard, you know. You see, you see these Asian countries where, you know, someone gets a cold and they wear a mask. Great. They're not arguing about being oppressed and having their rights taken away from them. They just wore a mask for the doing it for the common good, doing it for the common good. It's not. Yeah. You know what? You can still appreciate and be a supporter of the second amendment and wear a mask. It's very simple. (laughs) The two things are not mutually exclusive. (laughs) I don't disagree with you, friend. Hey, before we move on here from our, from good old COVID-19, we can't avoid it clearly. Um, any any other parting thoughts on Austin P on this first matchup? Any worries? Any fun facts about Austin P you want to share with the people? Uh, fun facts. Their mascot is the Governors, <laughs> and uh, I think I think you did that. You did this research. Um, their most popular cheer is "Let's Go P." <laughs> it's very uh, close to one of our favorite cheers. You got peed on, so. Uh, <laughs> Some commonality there, some 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 synergy between the two schools. Uh, I look forward to it. I, I really hope we are kicking off the season at Nippert Stadium on September 3rd. Who knows how big the crowd will be? Who knows what it'll look like? But as long as we get some football on the field, I will be a happy man. And 
And on that note, it sounds like we're getting ready to transition into the basketball portion of this conversation. I'd like to kick that off by starting with why we're going to be playing basketball in November, uh, regardless of COVID. Okay, go ahead. Um, so I, I'm in the, I'm in the camp that I think no matter what happens with COVID, basketball is going to be able to be played. Uh, one reason being is they the, the just the size of the team being as small as it is, the core people around it. If they decided they wanted to have a season for men's and women's basketball, quarantining students and quarantining the staff is much easier than say a football squad, you know, with uh, probably 150 and people who need to go to every single game. Um, in terms of staff and players, you know, so it's a lot, it's a lot easier when you're looking at the way the NBA is doing it. Not that that's a model college could necessarily adopt. You're not going to move every player in the American athletic conference down to Orlando for, for four months to play basketball. Um, but I think they have, they kind of have that model in place of what they're doing, how they're, how you're able to, to quarantine players. So there is a model in place already for basketball if it's needed to be used. Um, so I'm just of the opinion that I think they will be playing basketball uh, simply because of smaller teams, easier to control the environment. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to basketball. This is probably, I was thinking about this today in the car after reading the Justin Williams piece on the death chart, which I think is what we're going to get into. Um, but I, I don't think I've been this excited about a Bearcats basketball team in in a really long time. And it's, and it's not the excitement of saying like, oh, I have national championship expectations. I'm excited to see this, the exciting amount, the, the pure amount of excitement and youth that this squad is going to be bringing us. Yeah, there's, I think the account was seven new players on the team. Um, the freshman class is extremely exciting. So let's just, the new faces from a freshman standpoint, Mike Saunders Jr., Mason Madsen, Gabe Madsen, Tari Eason, and then the most recent addition, Victor Lotkin, who we briefly mentioned last week before we talked to Ron Allen. Um, look, Victor was largely unknown in terms of where he would fall, how he projects at the college level. He has experience playing on the Russian national team. Um, there's not a ton of footage out there about him, but 6'10", skilled big man. People are raving about his passing, and when, when he came over and finally signed on with the Bearcats, 24-7 sports had his, his ranking at 137, I think making him the second highest ranked recruit for the Bearcats, right behind Tari Eason. Maybe not right behind. I think Tari's in his own class with this freshman group, but he is the second highest rated freshman. And I was naturally thinking, all right, Victor comes in from Russia. He's probably an, a, a likely candidate to see a red shirt because I just don't think you can have 13 scholarship players who all seem to be quite talented, all at a very similar point in their careers for the most part, vying for minutes. It just it sounds like a recipe for disaster. It sounds like a recipe for a transfer portal influx come 2021. But I think we have to kind of revisit that as we as we look at the depth chart and look at what our overall roster construction looks like. So I agree with you, Hummer. I think my excitement for this team is incredibly high. Um, I'm still feeling high from the first year John Brandon experience. I was a huge fan of what the style of basketball was. I know it didn't work perfectly at all times. I know where there's, there were some extremely frustrating results during his first season. But look, we claimed a share of the American Athletic Conference regular season title. Um, we saw flashes of brilliance on the offensive end, out of timeout plays, exceptional. Uh, we saw periods and, and games where the Bearcats were pinging the ball around the perimeter, moving without the ball much more so than we have in the past. It's, a, it's an exciting brand of basketball, and we're bringing in players who are, are, are gifted from a basketball standpoint. It's clear that there's, there's shooting ability, there's passing ability, there's, there's offensive talent coming in that, that maybe we're not so accustomed to. It doesn't seem so much like we're bringing in projects. We're bringing in guys who have deficiencies and, and maybe – you know, either need to build up their athleticism, build up their ball handling, in some cases build up their shooting like Mike Saunders Jr. But the, the potential is just really, really exciting. Um, one thing I'll mention before I send it back to you, obviously I, I went over the freshman class, but in addition to that, we landed some transfers that in themselves are very exciting players. We've talked about them before. Rapolis Ivanowskis, gifted big man who wants to come in and play the four uh, but he tore UC up last year. His offensive skill sets off the off the charts. 
Um, and it just comes down to whether he can defend uh, at the American Athletic Conference level. And when you look at our non-conference, the type of competition we're going to play. And then in addition to that, David DeJulius coming in from Michigan, his status for the upcoming season is still up in the air. Um, I saw that Marquette, the, the transfer uh, Carlton from Ohio State, he got cleared to play for Marquette. That makes me more optimistic about the case David DeJulius may have for this coming season. But when you, when you look at the new talent on this team and then the returning players as well, I can't help but to feel incredibly excited about what this coming season could bring. Yeah. And, you know, from the terms of the freshman, you, you hit the nail on the head. I actually think Victor is, is going to be a, a big redshirt candidate. Uh, a couple things going against him playing this year. Um, and not to hit on the, the keyword of today, if you were playing a drinking game, every time we say COVID, take a shot. Uh, COVID-19, when, when is he going to be allowed to travel to the United States? When is he going to allow to be, is he already, you know, I don't know the question, answer to this question. Is he currently in the U.S.? Is he not? If he is not, how does he get here? If when he does get here, you know, is there, is there, what's the, is there going to be a quarantine protocol? Who, who knows? There's a lot of, of questions to answer there. Um, it just seems also, too, with us kind of being, I don't want to use the word stacked, but we have definitely um, – we have a lot of big men, I think, on the team or players who can play the big man, um, or I think that we're going to be, be versatile in playing that spot, that I think he's going to be a good candidate for, um, uh, for redshirting. I don't know if, I, if I'm seeing too many other players that I'm thinking that are going to be, be redshirted. Um, David DeJulius is – that has a, a really big question mark around him and whether – you mentioned it, whether or not we're going to get that transfer uh, waiver – uh, Brandon seems to think that we're going to be uh, he's very optimistic about it but what excites me about this team really is the fact that we have some players that are from a freshman standpoint that could could light it up could surprise us and be incredibly efficient freshmen from a recruiting class standpoint um, you know we're number one in our own conference so beating out Memphis thanks thanks Penny for not bag dropping too much uh, this this cycle um, that's and, what, and, no, that's what you get when you go hunting for players who are, who are going to make that G League team, right? They, you know, the type of player, Jalen Green, those, because I think Memphis was high on his list. And if he had went to college, they're getting Jalen Green. Well, he's cashing a 500K check now. You know, that's, that's the spoils. And Mick Cronin saw the same thing at UCLA. If you're playing in that top 10 area with these guys who are legitimate pro prospects, who frankly shouldn't have to sit out a year before going to the pros, you, you're at risk of losing those guys now. Yep. Um, the national rank's not too bad either. They're giving us 42, um, which is a slight improvement over last year's overall class. Uh, you know, but I'm excited to see what a guy like Tari Eason can do and see if he's going to have that, that potential to, as a freshman to make a gigantic impact on this squad. But I'm also excited to see if there's guys like Micah Adams-Woods. And we, we talk about a lot that – you know, the, the sophomore to junior year, you're looking to see that big jump. You know, if, if you're going to have that breakout season, it's, it's your junior year that you're going to start it, right? Well, I'm curious to see if Micah Adams-Woods, who had, in my opinion, kind of a, a very stellar freshman year, is going to be taking a jump his sophomore year because a lot of the scoring load is going to be on, I mean, a lot of his shoulders. Uh, not as a primary scorer, but you're going to have a core, a core group of guys that the scoring is going to be spread out. And I think he's going to be a key to success for this squad. So I'm really excited to see what, what he's going to be able to bring and how he's going to grow. And we all know Brandon's style is to share minutes. So I think a lot of these players are going to play as long as they're, you know, we know he wants them to play defense. Um, if they're learning his offensive style, they're all going to play. So they're right. all going to get their, they're going to get their share of minutes. Potentially. So that's what we should kick around. What I want to do is let's go through the depth chart, the projected depth chart. Uh, Justin Williams wrote an article this week kind of highlighting it. We're going to play off that a little bit and, but then, you know, make a couple tweaks and then share a couple of opinions about what lineups you'd actually like to see. Because I think with the additions of Ivanowskis to Julius, uh, and then the fact that you've got guys like Tari and, and Lockton coming in, Lock, Lockton coming in, um, there's tough decisions to be made. So let's, before we get into the actual depth chart, here's the two big variables looming over the Bearcats at this point. Number one, 
Keith Williams, is he coming back to the University of Cincinnati next season? Um, you see varying opinions on this. Our opinion, I, I won't speak for you, Hummer. My opinion on this is that it's more likely that Keith Williams is not playing for the Bearcats next season that's, than it is that he would be an NBA, going to the NBA. I don't know what happens in terms of the draft. I don't know if he gets drafted, if he goes to the G League, if he goes abroad. I just My feeling tells me that it's, it's a more than a 50-50 shot that he goes pro. I mean, I, I was feeling differently than you until our conversation with Cameron Pern. And he, you know, highlighted this, some of the things that he thinks Keith Williams very good at, that he was in the opinion that he could be a second-round draft pick. You know, it's not a lock that he's a second-round draft pick. Uh, but being that he's that kind of high up there that's landing him a G League contract and playing against talent that's probably of, of a higher caliber just, just by the, you know, being a pro league, you know, I could see that move being very beneficial for Keith Williams. At the same token, we've also talked about the other side of things, being that if Keith Williams does return, we know a lot of the offense will flow through Keith Williams. Um, regardless of our, of our sharing mentality, he will be scoring the lion's share of points. He will be running a key points of the offense. So he might, and he might actually be maybe able to grow more from being the big fish in a small pond versus going to be that big fish in a, in a big pond um, that the G league is. So I don't think he's coming back if the, if the money's right in the G league, but um We'll see. Yeah. You know, it's just we'll a big variable. It's, we don't know, and we're not going to fifty. Well, yeah, the the uh, NBA draft has been scheduled for October sixteenth. I think players are going to have to make their ultimate decision in August sometime. So we'll see. I just think the difference between Keith Williams coming back versus not coming back. If he comes back, we feel pretty dang solid across the board in terms of just being solid at every single position. Right? We have a wing scorer coming back who we know can get his shot off. We've seen him in that role before last season. Are we still wanting more consistency? Absolutely. But we know Keith Williams can do it. You can, you can rely on him as a primary scorer, especially if you're building out more offensive options around him. The, if he doesn't come back, it's much more of an unknown commodity uh, when you look at our backcourt. It's just, and we'll go through that. The second big question, I alluded to it earlier, does David DeJulius get cleared to play next season? And that's up in the air. I like our odds, given Chris Vogt's decision last year. And like I said, given DJ Carlton's decision with Marquette, time will tell. So let's well, kind of... There's, there's one other variable I would feel we would be sliding not to mention it. Chris Vogt did declare for the NBA draft as well. Um, I'm putting his, his shots at coming back at 99% to the University of Cincinnati. Uh, yeah, so... While that, I just didn't want to not mention it. I didn't want anybody to feel that we we're sliding Chris vote and not mentioning that he did declare for the NBA draft. No, right. We should mention that he did declare for the draft. He signed with an agency uh, that still allows him to return to college. Here, here's the reason I don't know if it's as big of a variable. I'm talking about our biggest two variables right now. He's not one of the two biggest variables. That's because, A, I think it's extremely likely, likely he comes back to college. Like if Keith Williams is a 50-50 shot, I would say there's a 90% chance Chris Vote is returning to UC, and I'm probably underestimating. Well, I'm saying Keith Williams is 50-50 because I think there's value in both decisions. There, there is value, obviously monetary value, in going to the G League, right? But then on the other side of it, from a talent perspective or from a, a, a uh, development perspective, there is a positive in coming back to school. So that's, that's why I say it's 50-50 for him. I'm not saying he, he lacks a talent in any means. But with Chris Vogt, where he stands, I don't think it's much of a decision. I think that he's mainly going to get the feedback from the NBA scouts of what he needs to work on um, you know, from, from a game perspective. And I think he's coming back because he's not, I don't think he has the opportunity in the G League right now. Yeah, I just think that there's not a ton of opportunity in the NBA for a player who – plays the style of Chris Vogt. If he was a dominant defensive rebounder or, or a shot blocker and just like a, an, an intimidating defensive force, which he's not at this point, you know, maybe there's a case, but right now, you know, a post-up player uh, who's not an ace defensively, I just think there's not an opportunity. There's not going to be an opportunity right now in the NBA for someone like him. And then in 
to go hand in hand with that, the reason I'm, I don't think it's as big of a variable is that I feel pretty good about the front court rotation if he does choose to leave for the, for the professional ranks, whether the NBA abroad or the G League. Because if he, if he goes that route, we're, we're filling in at that point uh, our, our big man rotation. Let's start there. We'll kind of go in reverse order. Our big man rotation is Chris Vogt, Rapalis Ivanowskis, Mamadou Diara, Victor Lockin, and I'm putting him in here, Tari Eason. I'm considering him a big because of the fact that I think he's most valuable if he's playing at the four. I know he's highly skilled. I know he has ball handling skills. I know it appears that he can actually uh, shoot it from, from three as well. However, he's, ext- he's much, much more valuable for us if he's occupying one of those quote-unquote big man roles because of who he's going to be matched up with at that point. I mean, he's going to be able to destroy fours off the dribble in the college ranks. So I consider Tari a part of our big man rotation. So if Chris Vogt, let's say, does not come back to UC in the unlikely, unlikely event that happens, I still feel good about you know, subbing in for him, Ivan Auskis, running Mamadou Diara more at the five. I know he doesn't like it, but he's really good there. We want a guy who can stretch from three and defend and rebound defensively. Mamadou Diara is the ideal center in John Brandon's system, in my mind. Um, so when you factor Diara, Ivanowskis, Tari, you know, I feel good about being able to make do in the front court, whereas without Keith Williams, it's just we're a little more uncertain there, in my opinion. It's funny you're mentioning Mamadou Diara being being better in the five. I'm not going to 100% flat out disagree with you. You know, one thing we did notice towards the end of the season, though, is when we had a more athletic or, you know, a better ball handler um, than Chris Vogt playing the five, we, we fared better, especially from from an offensive threat that had range. Um, so when Trey Scott was down low, he was able to do post moves. He was, you know, able to spin, get open down low, but then at the same time, kick it out. But then at the same time, if he was out on the three-point line, he had to draw the defenders out to him because he was still a slight threat out there. So I'm actually curious to see, yes, Mamadou with his three, three-point shooting ability, if he improves upon that this year. But with Tari Eason, with what we've seen that he can handle the ball, he has the size, and he has the shot. So he has a lot of tools to be very dangerous in, some, in that more of that hybrid four position, you know, being a big but not necessarily being a five kind of being that, that Trey Scott disruptor. Right. No, I, I think that's a good point. Mamadou did thrive when Trey Scott went playing with Trey Scott. And I think the, the key there is how talented Trey Scott was. Trey Scott could go down low and play in the post. And probably we found out that was being underutilized when you look at what he was able to do late in the season. Um, however, what he could also do is pop out. So I just think it made it made our offense a lot more flexible to have Trey and Mamadou out there versus Chris Vogt because of how Chris Vogt thrives in that down low position. Let me catch it deep, finish at the rim. We saw the field goal percentage. That's what he thrives at, but that's that's really what he's going to do. In terms of going out to the perimeter, Chris Vogt doesn't have a have game out there. He can set good picks. He's a great big body out there for screens, but in terms of being as agile and playing that uh, positionless, positionless, uh, positionless, positionless style of basketball that John Brandon talks about, Chris Vogt doesn't play into that as much. So I just think, I think we become a little more dynamic offensively uh, with more Ivanowskis, more Diara, more Tari. That said, you can't you can't undersell the experience and and frankly the size of Chris Vogt uh, if and when he decides to come back. Well, it's also, I'm not going to discount the fact, too, that um, social media, um, we've seen Chris Vogt and Mamadou Diara hanging out with the Brandons quite a bit this offseason. Um, and if I had to take a guess, they're not just sitting around talking about TV shows and movies. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're probably out there. I would imagine they're, they're probably in some sort of playing some one-on-one games or, or whatnot, and they're working on, some, and working on that stuff. But it, it, when you're pointing out that uh, – you know, what we saw toward the end season with Trey Scott and Mamadou, that's kind of what I was going to be thinking that maybe we're going to see with Ivanowskis and Diara or, or Tari Eason, almost like a three-way um, love triangle. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and Chris Vogt, I think he just has some, he has some things that he needs to work on and he can't, I still think we can see the Chris Vogt that we saw earlier in the season 
there's just some things he needs to work on. He needs a post yeah. move. That, that yeah. is something that he absolutely needs is a stronger post move, uh, being able to be more effective when he puts the ball on the court or on the, on the floor and being able to kick the ball out faster and being able to being able to have better vision and seeing that open guy coming off of a screen on the, on the high post and being able to kick the ball out quicker. That's the key development for Chris Vote is can he be a faster decision maker when he catches it down low? Because he, if he is drawing doubles, we saw plenty of doubles late in the season from American athletic teams. If that continues to happen, but he comes back next season quicker and faster with finding the open man, we're going to be better off. And Chris Vote's going to be extremely valuable at that point. Yep. So there's definitely a place for him. When Chris Vogt does come back, that, line, that big man rotation of Chris Vogt, Ivanovskis, Diara, and Eason, that's exactly why when you pair it with the fact that he's traveling from Russia, that's why it's, it just seems likely that Victor would be someone who may want to consider redshirting. And I think those decisions are always made by the player. I'm sure there's conversations with the coaching staff. Uh, but when you consider he's a four-year player, let's get you on American soil, start the development process. We have two of our big men here. Uh, Ivanowskis and Vote, who will be seniors. There are going to be plenty of minutes in the front court for years to come. Um, so I think that makes Victor a likely sit-out candidate for year one with the Bearcats. Now, Hummer, let's move on and start talking about wings and, and what we'll call ball handlers. I'm, I'm ripping that off, I guess, uh, from Justin Williams. I don't think it's all that uncommon. Uh, but if we look at our depth chart here, here's how I, I laid it out. You can tell me what you agree, disagree with, or what you who you want to see get major minutes, who you have questions about, who, who's a wild card. At the ball handler position, we have Micah Adams-Woods. I slotted him in the A spot given his experience in that role, but also the fact that David DeJulius right now is a bit up in the air from an eligibility standpoint. Um, after him, I did put David DeJulius because of the talent coming from Michigan, Mike Saunders Jr., and Mason Madsen, who's going, going to definitely fall into that combo guard type player. And then at our wings, to round out our scholarship players, Keith Williams, we've talked about him already, Zach Harvey, Jeremiah Davenport, and Gabe Madsen. Very intriguing set of wing players. Very young, especially if Keith Williams doesn't come back. Uh, what are your thoughts? All right, so from a ball handler perspective, you know, this is going to, I think, sound kind of crazy to some people that I'm going to say I think Mike Adams-Woods is the wild card. Um, and I explain that because if I'm looking at what uh, people are saying, well, if the Julius is eligible, he's immediately our starter. I'm not discounting that he is talented, but I also don't see necessarily John Brandon saying you're not going to battle for it. And so he's going to have to beat out Mike Hanswood, who's who gained a lot of confidence last year and a lot of trust from Brandon and being able to, to instigate some of the offense um, and being a ball handler. So I'm really thinking Micah Adams Woods, if he has a developmental year, could be a wild card that is fighting for, you know, very significant minutes, if not, you know, outright splitting them with someone like the, the Julius. Uh, I'm not seeing Mason. I don't know enough really about him and seeing his game, except knowing that he can shoot from the outside pretty well. Um, so you know, I think his I think his opportunity is a little is is a little more limited his his upside, um, and we know Mike Saunders Jr. is just absolutely he's he's very quick, uh, very very aggressive. So I think he's also a, a player who could squeak in some minutes, but I don't think we're going to see him uh, pounding out minutes the way I think you might see you know Tari Eason as as playing a big man role that we're going to see him him roll out from a wing perspective. I'm going to do it two ways. Obviously one, if Keith Williams is in there, he's a stud. He's, he's, he's our Jaron Cumberland this yeah. year. 33 so. minutes a game. Like he's, he's playing a majority of the game. He, we're relying on him. We're yep. spreading the court for him. He's eating, he's eating in that role. Yeah. But if he doesn't come back, let's, it might be interesting to talk about it from that perspective. Uh, honestly, I'm excited to see Zach Harvey uh, and Jeremiah Davenport. Both of these guys, Jeremiah Davenport last year, against the, I think it was Memphis. Um, he comes down and just gets absolutely demolished, hustles down the court, makes another fantastic play right in the face of, um, God, what was his name? Um, Memphis big man. Prince Precious, Achua. Prince Precious Achua. Achua. Precious, Precious Achua. Achua. And just doesn't back down from him. Like you saw the fire, that, that, that fire in Jeremiah Davenport, that if he's giving, if he has a, a growth moment and he's able to hit the court more often. I think that's going to be something to, to keep an eye on. 
Um, but Zach Harvey, let me, his, can I interject real quick? On, can I, it is. Can I interject real quick on Jeremiah Davenport and ask you a quick question? Yeah. And this comes, this quote is from, from entourage back in the day. What if I told you that Jeremiah Davenport had a worse three point shooting percentage than Chris McNeil? Now, would that be something you might be interested in? Okay. It wouldn't, I mean, sample size. <laughs> I know. Look, it, I'm sure it's going to be better. He shot 14% from three last season. Um, he's an extremely confident shooter, though. And I think that's why we love Jeremiah Davenport. He's so confident across the board. He comes on the court, high energy, great enthusiasm, extremely tough, not backing down from anyone. You alluded to that with the Prince Achua challenge, precious Achua challenge. Why do I keep saying that? Uh, either way, he's an exciting player. I love his size. He's six seven, so he's someone you could see at the three or the four. Um, but we need to see if those shooting splits can go up in year two. And by all accounts, it sounds like he can knock down those shots in practice. But we've heard that before. Uh, none other than than Trevor Moore, uh, who's moved off to Morgan State, I believe. So we we need better than a practice shooter. We need a guy who can come in and knock him down during games. But you know, so I get what you're saying too with with the with the shooting three points, and that's supposed to be what he's he's good at because um, he has some some good percentages in co- or high school, uh, you know, and you would expect that to go up. But if there's any player who proves you can be somewhat effective in the NBA without shooting any three pointers at all, <laughs> and Simmons. Uh. I know it's. I know we're approaching basketball season when Hummer starts comparing every every player in Simmons. Uh, no, I'm I'm just kidding. But in all in all seriousness, though, I'm just I just want to see what Jer- Jeremiah Davenport didn't see the court a lot last season. We did not get to see a lot of him, so I think yeah. he's a wild card because we haven't seen a lot. But there is expectations that he's good. Yeah, well, he was kind of a late pickup. You know, he played a year at prep school. He's not necessarily thought of as like the highest upside guy. His athleticism doesn't maybe pop off the page. What does pop off the page is that when you look at these other wings and these ball handlers, Micah Adams, Micah Adams Woods is six, three David DeJulius. I think he's hanging out around six, six, one Mike Saunders, jr. Five eleven or six foot Mason Madsen, six, two, six, three Keith Williams, six, five Zach Harvey, six, five Gabe Madsen, six, six, all those guys, six, six or less Jeremiah Davenport coming in at six, seven gives you some legitimate size in the backcourt. So if he can develop, into a, a knockdown shooter. I think we feel really good about his defensive potential. We look at him kind of as a Rashad Bishop type impact player. If he develops in the right way and can stay healthy. Um, I definitely think he's an interesting player for next season in terms of what role he finds. You were getting into Zach Harvey. So I hate, I can't keep using the term wild card because Zach Harvey was another guy who saw limited minutes. But I think the reason why we saw those he saw those limited minutes was in the beginning of the season, middle of the season, there were at times where he just looked like the game was too fast for him, that he was just a step behind on every defensive play and, and he wasn't getting minutes. You also saw, I believe some frustration coming out on Twitter from his parents. Um, you know, and, and I'm not saying that that stuff has impact, but you know, I think that's in the, the minds of some people where you mentioned we could have a transfer portal crisis similar to that of what's happening um, this year at Wichita State. If a guy like Zach Harvey doesn't improve this season to the point where he is seeing those significant minutes, he's a guy that I see actually as a transfer, as a transfer guy um, transferring out um, if, if he's not having that, that significant um, upswing in minutes and quality of play. Wow. Wow. I hope we're not seeing that. Zach I Harvey. hope we're not either. I'm just saying like, that's, that's, that's the reality of the situation because you could tell he's, he's frustrated because he knows he has the talent. He knows he can do it. No, for sure. I, he's got high expectations. You could tell he really believes in his game. You know, Trey Scott talked about him in press conferences. He believes in his game. They know that the potential and upside is there. It just didn't translate to the court. We found out that the ankle injury, the surgery he had before last season was lingering. Maybe the explosiveness wasn't there. Toward the end of the season, we definitely saw flashes. But what we didn't see was any sort of consistency game to game, half to half. Zach Harvey could be incredibly important to this team next season. If Keith is not back, we're slotting in Zach Harvey as a starter. And all of a sudden, this guy goes from, hey, we need a good five minutes out of you a game to, Zach, 
we need a good 20 minutes out of you per game. That's 20. a big <laughs> We need a good 25, 30. True. You know, we're needing to see close to double doubles, you know, because he has the ability off the with the dribble. Um, he has the ability from from shooting, so he can be a scorer, but he also could potentially be a, a facilitator from that position as well. Well, I think yeah, his facilitating is really underrated. He found he had some great looks last season. So I just think he's he's probably the guy that we need to watch the most. We want to see that big leap. He probably has the potential for the biggest leap for the sophomores to have go from freshman to sophomore year in terms of just wow, this guy came back a different player. We're seeing some of the highlight videos. Obviously, when you watch those. He's not dribbling against the defense. They're isolation plays against nobody, and he's able to rise and dunk in impressive ways. He has step-back jumpers. He can hit from three. We saw flashes of all of those things last season. Now he needs to put, put it together, and if he does, it raises our ceiling to an entirely different level. If Zach Harvey is a legitimate scoring option next season and we're putting him in the backcourt next to Keith Williams, next to DeJulius or Micah Adams-Woods, our team is going to be contending easily for the American athletic title. If Zach Harvey's not that type of productive and we lose Keith Williams, the prospects look a lot different. Yeah. And if, if we're in that situation, that's where you're going to have to, and this is where the season is so interesting because you have freshmen that you're going to have to rely on. So you're going to have to see a guy like Tari Eason, who in that case, if you're losing Zach Harvey and Keith Williams, that's where I think you're wrong about Tari. And I think he's moving into more of the wing position um, in that scenario. And I think that's where you're going to be seeing relying on him. But I honestly don't think we're going to have that. I do not think we're going to be talking about Zach Harvey transferring. Uh, you know, my only point though, is if this season goes the wrong way, I think he's, he's one of the guys that you see because he's, there's so many, there's so many young players fighting for a limited number of minutes and guys are going to want to go elsewhere. If they're not getting them and they feel they deserve them. I, th- I mean, I can't so. – yeah, it's, it's wildly speculative of you, but at the same time, I think it's true. It's one of the first things we asked either Justin Williams or Brett Stein about the, the number of players and the fact that you have a lot of freshmen, a lot of sophomores, and guys who really probably all consider themselves to be in the same position and the same talent level. Well, they're all fighting over the same limited number of minutes. So how John Brandon juggles that is incredibly interesting. It's going to be one of the easily the top three storylines going into next season. Um, we haven't talked much about the Gabe, uh, about the Madsen brothers, Gabe and Mason. You did allude to the fact that Mason, he may be the odd man out in terms of what you see, um, the kind of minutes he's going to be competing for. There's only so many minutes to go around and not everybody can get them. Uh, just based on pure rankings alone, he's clearly coming in as the lowest ranked player in that recruiting class. That doesn't mean anything necessarily. He could come in and impress. His shooting is off the charts. Ryan James was incredibly impressed with how much of a, a, a shooter he's become. So that's a, that's a huge development, especially with, with a team that may be a little bit limited from a shooting standpoint. We lost the Cumberland Cousins. Uh, Micah Adams proved he can knock down a shot, but he wasn't high volume. David DeJulius is a good shooter, uh, but we don't know what his status is going to be. Mike Saunders, Keith Williams, Zach Harvey, Jeremiah Davenport, those guys struggled to shoot um, last season. Zach Harvey has the pedigree to be a great shooter. In terms of translating it to the court, we haven't seen it yet. So interesting enough, I think there's more questions in our backcourt. I think we have more questions at the ball handler positions, at wings, in terms of what happens with eligibility, what happens with returning players, how John Brannon decides to stagger the minutes. Well, I think there's less less questions actually with the ball handlers because I think you know if DeJulius is here, you know, because of his talent, because he's played in the, on the big stage before, you know, he's going to get minutes. He's going to play. That's uh, right. I, I was kind of lumping them all together, but you're right. Specifically yeah. with, like, the quote-unquote point guard position, we're probably okay there. I think the biggest question mark is the wing spot. That if we were going to put together, you know, before the season starts, what has you worried this season – it's and we still haven't heard from Keith Williams come October twelfth, you know, and season's getting ready to start in in, in less than two weeks. Uh, we're sitting there saying, okay, I'm worried about the wings because we don't we have the question mark: Is Zach Harvey going to be stepping up this season? If he doesn't, is you know, are we really putting our our fate into the hands of a freshman? 
And then also Jeremiah Dabord, who you mentioned did not live up to expectations last year either, shooting a worse three-point percentage than Chris McNeil. So I, I think the wing spot is where the big question marks are going to be or the scary question marks. Uh, because the ball handlers, once again, if DeJoyus is there, you know he's playing and he's probably splitting minutes very heavily with Micah Adams-Woods, with Saunders fighting for minutes, and then Mason trying, trying also fighting for minutes, if not just picking up scraps. And then vice versa, if it's if DeJoyus is out, it's Mike, Micah Adams-Woods all the way, followed by Saunders Jr. picking up the, the split time there as a ball handler. Well, we kind of we, – we probably went a little bit overkill on this, but I think <laughs> – I think it captures Hummer why it's such an interesting team and intriguing season to come because there's so much unknown. You know, we've seen Micah, we've seen Zach, we've seen Keith Williams, but other than that, you know, Mamadou and Chris Vogt, these are all new faces for our program. And it's fun to look at all of the recruits with rose-colored glasses, see the high school tape, you see all of the positives coming in it's really hard to depend on freshmen their first season. You know, we're putting a pretty big burden of expectations on Tari Eason and rightfully so. I think everything I've seen and heard, I'm expecting him to be a key rotation player for the Bearcats. The other freshmen, it's not fair to them to put them, put an expectation on them that, Hey, we're expecting you to be 15 to 20 minutes a game, big time score. Don't expect it. It's not going to happen. If it does, it's shocking. You know, it's, 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 it's abnormal to happen. Um, but for that reason, it makes it a very fun team to, to, to kick around ideas on in terms of what happens with lineups. We'll be able to get into it much more as the season approaches. Uh, obviously we're months away, but Hey, we're desperate for uh, some sports talk and I'm glad we got to do that today. Oh, you're going to love this one then. Cause I just noticed this um, with the recruiting class this year, all five freshmen could be a starting lineup three years from now everybody filling, filling a unique position. Three years from now, we have our fat five. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I like it. This is, uh, you know, John Brandon's first full recruiting class, and it's the class that's going to take him to the Final Four and ultimately propel him to the Hall of Fame. Woo! <laughs> All right, buddy, I think we're going to kind of leave it there unless you got anything else to, to mention. Actually, one thing did just pop into my head. I just wanted to ask you. How do you like the scheduling approach of John Brandon? Love it. Just, just, let's just hammer out, hammer out the competition because here at the end of the day, when we, so once Brandon gets his system in, and I think once where he's rocking and rolling and players understand, and we're not worrying about, you know, who's, we're not having these seven player, you know, flip roster flips every year. Um, what, what we're going to run into, what we're not going to run into is what we ran into last year where we just didn't have any competition in our, I want to say any, we did have a decent strength non-conference schedule, uh, but the stronger it is, the less we have to rely on winning in the American athletic conference almost every game or outright winning the conference in terms of getting into the tournament, because we were able to do some resume building in the beginning of the year, you know, where we lost to South Florida, I believe it was last year. I think it was South Florida. And we were all just like doom and gloom. This is the end of the world. We just lost to a, a sub 100 in the net rankings team. Uh, I think if we're able to build a better resume on the front side, we don't have to worry about, you know, those late non-conference or late conference games that, that you trip up on. I think the big loss was Central Florida, right? At home. I think Central Florida, South Florida. Yeah, Central Florida. Where we, we, yeah, that game was an abomination, but I think it's, it's, it's going to be fascinating to follow. We'll get more into the football team in the coming weeks. I think it's, it's, we're well served to just dive into this, like all the sports are going to happen. I think it'll keep us sane. I think folks will want to hear it. Uh, there's much more meat on the bone, as you like to say, uh, with respect to the football team. So I look forward to getting into it with you. Um, and look, I'm, I'm super happy about the John Brandon scheduling approach. It seems like a guy who's not as intent on racking up um, meaningless wins more intent on let's develop these players. Let's play against the best. Let's measure ourselves against the best and prepare ourselves to be the best team we can possibly be come March so that we're peaking and ready to make a run. That hasn't been the case in years past. John Brandon knows exactly what it's about and what it takes to be an elite level program in March. All right, buddy. Uh, we'll leave it at that. 
uh, enjoyed talking to you. Stay healthy, be well, wear a mask, and uh, we'll, I'll look forward to talking to you next week. Beautiful. See you, hum. See ya.